Kate and I visited Parkside Church last Sunday. Uh, their pastor, Alistair Begg, was preaching from Second. Lots of messy things going on in that pa passage and chapter. Uh, he said that the Bible is not often as clean and orderly as fairy tales. It's the Bible's messy, like life is. And as I looked at the book of Ezra again this week, I thought if that Ezra was a fairy tale. It would have ended with chapter 2. At least that's a good place I think it could have ended. So after God kept his promises, he exercised his sovereignty to return his people to the land. After 70 years of exile, of being away from it in a foreign land, Ezra 2 closes with this line. It says, now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns, and all the rest of Israel in their towns. It's a very clean resolution. It's a perfect opportunity to insert the classic ending of the fairy tale, and they lived happily ever after. <laughs> but did they live happily ever after? Sure, a 70-year conflict gets resolved, but what happens next? You know, fairy tales and romance stories don't really talk about this part. They focus on getting us to the resolution and that's important, that's thrilling enough. But there is life after the resolution, and it isn't always happy. Recognizing that life isn't like a fairy tale, Stephen King ended one of his novels, The Eyes of the Dragon, by bringing the resolution at the very end and then saying, there were good days and bad days afterwards. We like clean endings that leave no room for mess. Even this week's election results prove that. <laughs> but that is so often not how life works. It's not how history works. Most of the time, it's not how the Bible works either. It turns out that life went on after the Israelites were set free from captivity and were back home. Life went on. It turns out also, that life goes on for us after God saves us and that we believe in Jesus. There is life after that. And so we ask, what happens now? This is where Ezra 3 picks up. The main point or idea from this chapter is that God saves us from captivity to sin and for a life of worshiping him. He saves us from captivity to sin for a life of worshiping him. So my prayer is that we look at this portion of scripture. God would show you your need of rescuing, your need of forgiveness and freedom from the captivity to sin that all of us are under. And this freedom comes only through the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus. It's my prayer that God would show you that. And it's my prayer also, if Jesus has set you free, that God would show you his goodness again and fill your heart to worship him afresh. So we'll break Ezra 3 into two parts. Each of these parts answers how the Israelites lived or should have lived after they were set free. And they'll serve to show us how we should live after we've been saved and come to know the Lord. Part 1 is verses 1 to 7. Commit to worship. Part 2, verses 8 to 13. Commit to worship as you wait. So commit to worship, part 1. Let's start by reading verses 1 to 7. 
When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Yeshua, the son of Jehozadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Sheetiel, with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians, to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. The meat of these verses will show us the people's commitment to worship the Lord. But before cutting into the meat, let's take a seat. Notice the environment that we're in. What's the air that the Israelites were breathing? What was their situation? What was their emotions? What is their context? Well, we notice the Israelites' context, their commitment to worship comes to life. So I think we could see two parts of their context, kind of where they were living. These verses, chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, come in the context of having already received grace. Already received grace. They had already received the answer to a prayer that was prayed for 70 years. 70 years away from home after the tears and agony of an invading enemy uprooting them from their homes and placing them in a foreign land hundreds of miles away. Now, they are back. They are free. What will they do with that freedom? The grace and freedom that they received, notice, friends, we read these verses, the grace and freedom that they received didn't make them complacent. Rather, it fueled a life of worship. The grace they received fueled a life of worship. They knew that God had brought them back to the land for a purpose, to rebuild his temple and to represent him to the nations around him by worshiping him and living for him. This is how God has always worked. He does not say, live a good enough life and then I will set you free. That is not how God works. If, if we think that God works that way, and we often operate and function as if God does work that way, then we do good works in order to get God to owe us something. That's not the case. Instead, God says, out of my grace, not because of anything that you have done, not because you deserve it, in fact, in spite of you deserving it, I will set you free. And now, Live a good life. This means that anybody can have this freedom because it's from grace. It's not earned. 
This means that everybody who does have this grace and freedom is now filled with humility, gratitude, and worship. That is the pattern. That's the pattern we see here. That's the pattern we've read about in Titus chapter 2, where it says the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And now how do we respond? Now what does that grace do? It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. We've received grace, and now we live for the Lord who gave us grace. This is the context. Already received grace. If you find or we find that we are indifferent to our worship of God, that we basically go through the motions every day, every Sunday, that we stuff God into one corner of our hearts or one corner of our lives. If that's how we are in this moment, perhaps it's because we have not truly grasped God's grace. Maybe we can put it a better way. Perhaps it's because God's grace has not truly grasped us. It's not gripped us. Well, friend, does God's grace grip you this morning? Does it animate you, fill you, captivate you? And what if it doesn't? What if you're still just kind of blah? Well, along with the Israelites in Ezra 3, you should remember the captivity that God saved you from. This is all over the Bible. We read about it in Colossians on Wednesday night. I think of Jesus' words from John chapter 8. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That is our captivity, slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. The Son of God has set the slaves up to sin free. We have received grace, and now we live in freedom, committed to worshiping the Lord. William Cooper, the author of the hymn, uh, There is a Fountain, uh, he captures what it looks like to be gripped by grace. I love this quote. He says, To see the law of Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Pray that God's grace in Christ would fuel your heart to worship him as it did for the Israelites. So the Israelites' commitment, sitting down at the restaurant before they even cut into the meat, what is the environment that they are in? They have already received grace. And also, this, their commitment to worship comes in the context of experiencing opposition. So receiving grace, experiencing opposition. Look at verse 3 of Ezra chapter 3. Look at verse 3. It says, They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. So it turns out that not just that life doesn't, that life goes on after we're set free. But for the Israelites, not only does life go on, but that life isn't easy. We won't see the specific opposition that the Israelites received until the next chapter, chapter 4. But here, they knew that the people who were in their land represented a threat to them. So what did they do? They faced threats before. 
We think of the threat from Babylon, the empire that took them in, uh, into exile. When Babylon was growing in strength and starting to loom over Israel and, and leveling threats against them, it was a tragic irony that Israel, that what they did is they actually sought help from Egypt. That's right. They sought help from their former slave masters. So you put yourselves in their shoes right now in Ezra 3. You just got back from 70 years of enemies holding you hostage. And when you return home, you discover that the opposition hasn't left you behind. And besides just being demoralizing, it could also be paralyzing. You find that enemies are there and threatening you. You may never want to leave your house again. If you do, maybe enemies will take it. But amidst vulnerability, amidst threats, the Israelites, they didn't decide to form an army. They didn't decide just to stay home. They didn't invoke help from another nation. Where has any of those things ever gotten them? No, amidst vulnerability and threat, the Israelites committed to worship the Lord. They drew near to God at the altar where he promised access to him. My Christian brother and sister, bolster your confidence today. In this world of hardship and opposition, we have access to God at the altar, the throne of grace. Not through the sacrifice of bulls and goats, but through the sacrifice of the sinless Son of God who died in our place. Relying on anything else is not only wrong, but will let you down in the end. Jesus alone is worthy of our trust, our worship, our lives, and he is there in our time of need when we experience opposition, even when we are afraid. So this was the context. Out of his grace and to keep his promises, God set them free. When they returned, they faced opposition. This was the air that they were breathing. So how did they use their freedom? What did they do in the face of fear? They committed to worship. So cutting into the meat of this passage now, we can see what this worship looked like. They can make at least four observations. First op observation, what their worship looked like. First, you see that they built the altar and offered sacrifices on it. There's sacrifices everywhere all over this passage. So uh, figures Joshua and Zerubbabel led them in this. But we find that all the people back them. It says that people gathered as one man. So here, they are starting with by building the altar. Why start here? Well, this is what God's people had always done after God had delivered them. Consider the example of Abraham from Genesis chapter 12. It says, Abraham had marked his arrival in the land in just such a way, setting up his altar as a bold amen to the promise. Second observation, what did their worship look like? What did their commitment to worship look like? Well, they offered sacrifices on the altar, and they did so, notice, as it was written in the law of Mo Moses, the man of God. What did their worship look like? Their worship, their worship was biblical. It was biblical. This phrase is repeated throughout the passage. The Israelites likely followed instructions for sacrifices from a place like Exodus chapter 29. They understood, they, their worship was biblical, 
Because they understood that God cares about how we worship Him. Do you realize that? God cares about how we worship Him. And when we talk about worship, usually one of the first ways we talk about it is our preferences. You know, what kind of music do you like? Do you like contemporary or do you like traditional? What kind of service do you like? How do you like it structured? How long do you like it? How, what do you like about the preaching? And these are all fine. These are all good things to discuss. Friends, this should not be the first thing we discuss. What we should discuss first is what does the Lord require of us? What does the Word say we should do? God cares about how we worship. Their worship was biblical as it is written in the Law of Moses because the Israelites understood that central to worshiping God is obeying God. You ever thought about worship like that? We worship by obeying God. You know, when we talk about worship, we usually reduce it to how we feel about God, which is fine, but the conversation can't end there. Our love for God shows up in our emotions and in our actions. What did Jesus say? John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So they worshiped by the book. Their worship was biblical. Third observation. What did their worship look like? You, we see they celebrated the Feast of Booths. Just a quick detail, but worth noticing. They celebrated the Feast of Booths. Now, the Israelites celebrated this festival in the seventh month of their calendar. Their calendar is a lunar calendar. It's different from ours. So the seventh month would likely be around September or October in our calendar. This Feast of Booths, this festival, it celebrated God's provision and God's protection when Israel was in the wilderness after the exodus from Egypt. So every year, the Israelites reenacted their, the experience of their forefathers. They lived like they did. They lived in booths or tents. They ate like they did. So God gave them this festival, the Feast of Booths, and other ones like it, like the Passover, in order to shape their hearts and their minds. They would have celebrated this feast every single year. Celebrating this year in and year out, it should have brought them to believe that this was not just their forefathers' story. This was their story also. As God delivered their forefathers and provided for their forefathers, so he has delivered and provided for them. And at this celebration of the Feast of Booths, that lesson should have been loud and clear. They had just experienced something like a second exodus from Babylon. So friends, we also enter into and reenact the story of our exodus. We do so in baptism and in the Lord's Supper. Baptism shows that we have died to sin and, and have been raised to newness of life because we are united to Christ's death and his resurrection. This is our story. The Lord's Supper portrays Jesus' body broken, his blood shed for the forgiveness of sin. Every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, it should impress upon our hearts that this is our story. That what Christ has done in the past is still effective in the present and will remain effective into all eternity. So what if the, if the Israelites committed to worship after having received grace in the face of opposition? What did their worship look like? 
while they worshiped by building the altar, offering sacrifices. They did so biblically in accordance with God's word. They worshiped by celebrating the Feast of Booths. Fourth observation, by making preparations to rebuild the temple. They started to rebuild the temple. Look at verses six to seven. This tells us that they committed to offering sacrifices from the beginning of the seventh month, but that they noticed that something was missing. Foundation of the temple was not there. Didn't start yet. The seventh month from the Jewish calendar contained several events. First day of that month was a festival of trumpets. Tenth day of that month was the Day of Atonement, also known as Yom Kippur. But verse 6 doesn't mention the Day of Atonement. One of, the way, one of the ways the Day of Atonement functioned was to purify the most holy place. The most holy place was in the temple. But there was no temple. So it would have been very obvious, we need to rebuild this. If they were going to worship the Lord as he instructed, they needed to get started on the rebuilding project. Just another observation to make about their rebuilding the temple. Do you see who's involved in this project? Verses 6 to 7. Do you see the groups involved there? It says they, they needed masons, they needed carpenters, workers and resources from, from other lands. They even needed a decree from a pagan king. Even the money that they used to pay for all of this didn't come from them. We remember chapter 1, verse 4. Cyrus had funded their return. So think about this. All that they needed to worship God, all that they needed to rebuild the temple, all that they needed, they had received. They received it all. And all that they had received, they gave back. Friends, do you recognize that everything that you have, you have received? Everything you have is a gift. Do you live like that? Do you use what you have knowing that? Do you realize that a life committed to worship is a life committed to giving? It's because we worship God by giving back what we have received. And listen, this includes, but it's not limited to money, right? You've been given forgiveness. You've been given love. You've been given life, time. Will you give them back out of worship to God and love for your neighbor? Frederick Douglass titled one of his autobiographies, My Bondage and My Freedom. His story reminds me of the Israelite story. They were exiles, the exiles who returned to Babylon. You see, Douglas was born into slavery in Maryland. He witnessed and experienced its brutality, and he attempted escaping once unsuccessfully, but managed to escape when he was around 20 years old. And like the Israelites, life after freedom for Douglas was not happily ever after. He eventually got to the UK and spent some time there in, in Ireland and in Britain. And he wrote this and he compared it to his time in the Northern United States. He says, he, he wrote, I, I gaze around in vain for one who will question my equal humanity, claim me as his slave or offer me an insult. I employ a cab and I am seated beside white people 
I reach the hotel. I enter the same door. I am shown into the same parlor. I dine at the same table, and no one is offended. I find myself regarded and treated at every turn with the kindness and deference paid to white people. When I go to church, I am met by no upturned nose and scornful lip to tell me we don't allow N-words in here. Douglas didn't stay overseas. He returned to the United States to participate in the abolitionist cause, knowing full well the treatment he would receive when he got back. And how did he endure it? How did he endure the life after freedom that was not life happily ever after? Well, it's the same way he endured through most of his life, by worshiping the Savior his slave masters claimed to believe in. He wrote this in his autobiography, I was for weeks a poor, broken-hearted mourner, traveling through the darkness and misery of doubts and fears, I finally found that change of heart which comes by casting all one's care upon God and having faith in Jesus Christ as the Redeemer, Friend, and Savior of those who diligently seek Him. As those who God has set free from our captivity to sin, and done so through Jesus, but as those who still live in the world, we commit to worshiping God. We obey his word. We use what we have, what we have received, to honor him. Ezra 3 is the beginning of life after captivity. Back in the land. The question is, what would they do now? In the first seven verses, we see that they committed to a life of worshiping God. From verses 8 to 13, we see that they committed to worship God as they waited, waited for something more. Let's read these verses. Verses 8 to 13, chapter 3. Now, in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatiel, and Yeshua, the son of Jehozadak, made a beginning. Together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity, they appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. Yeshua, with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hanadad, and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord. For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shouts from the sound of the people's weeping, for the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. What's going on in this section 
See in verse 8, the work on the foundation of the temple continues. And we see more careful obedience to God's word. And it comes under the supervision of Israel's leaders in the community. And we see a pattern continue that started in the first section. A pattern of following the example of godly lives that came before them. So remember, we noticed that they followed the example of Abraham by building the altar. That's the first thing they do when they're back in the land. They followed the example of their forefathers by celebrating the Feast of Booths, entering into their experience, knowing what it's like to live like them and seeing that this is their story also. But here also, they followed the deeds of Solomon, King Solomon, and how they built the foundation of the temple. You might remember that Solomon built the first temple by making arrangements with the same groups of people talked about here. Solomon built the original temple even during the same time of year that the people here built it. So one commentator observes this pattern, following the deeds of godly lives who have went before us. And he asks, whose deeds are you following? Do you have a pattern in your life that you are seeking to emulate and follow? Makes me think of Paul's verse uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Follow me as I follow Christ. As the Israelites follow the pattern of godliness laid down by those before them, so we can look at godly brothers and sisters around us so that we can more faithfully follow Jesus. You have somebody who helps you here who does that. Are you of help to somebody else here so that they can follow Jesus more strongly? Well, they complete the foundation. In verse 10, people start to react. Foundation's done, now what do people do? There's one contingent that gathers in order to praise the Lord. It's a big ordeal, it's a party. Priests come with trumpets, others come with cymbals, all of them sing, all of them praise and give thanks to the Lord. And again, they did this according to, according to Scripture. They obeyed the word. First Chronicles 16, King David appointed these, these guys, these priests, the Levites, the sons of Asaph, to do just what they did here in Ezra 3. 1 Chronicles 16 comes before this. David instructs the Israelites to sing, Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Save us, God of our salvation. Gather us and rescue us from the nations so that we may give thanks to your holy name and rejoice in your praise. In that last line is, is a prayer. Save us from all the nations. It, the prayer is answered in Ezra 3. No wonder they can shout for joy. This prayer has been answered. Save us from all the nations. No wonder they sang with praise and thanksgiving. They sing, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. This is the response of the foundation of the temple being laid. Praise and thanksgiving. Just to press pause here. Do you sing of the Lord's goodness? This is a question I ask myself after reading Ezra 3, verse 11. Do you sing of the Lord's goodness? Or maybe we can ask it differently. Does the Lord's goodness make you sing? Do you smile and have joy over his love? Do you do it on days besides Sunday? I get that we, each one of us has different temperaments, 
I get that even here, you might not like all the songs we sing, but they are true, aren't they? I get that a lot of life is hard, but friends, we rejoicing in the Lord is a command, and we have good reason to do it. We can join the song of the returned exiles and praise and thanks God for accomplishing our redemption through Jesus. If you think about it, whether it's the festivals they celebrated, the sacrifices they offered, or the temple they were rebuilding, Jesus fulfills all of it. So friend, is Ezra 3.11 your song? If not, join in. Join in the worship of the only one who is worthy of it by trusting in Jesus and singing of him, singing because of him. He is the cornerstone of the new temple. Those who believe in him are called living stones of this temple as the very spirit of God indwells us. So this is one reaction. The temple foundation is completed. One group of people react with praise. But then verse 12 comes. It made me think. Thanksgiving's coming up. You have anybody in your family who, like, you kind of have to walk around walking eggshells around them? Who, when they come to Thanksgiving, they always seem to bring the mood down? They bring up topics that, like, you know shouldn't be brought up? And if we ended at verse 11, it could be another happily ever after moment. Everything's going well. People are praising. Foundations built. We're in good shape. But then enter the cranky uncles of verse 12. In the middle of joy, praise, and thanksgiving, some people weep. They don't stand at the back of the crowd either and just kind of cry quietly as everybody else sings. No, they are wailing. They are, as people call it, ugly crying. Now, we could just quiet their tears and their weeping and say that they're a bunch of snowflakes, that they should buck up and get over it. But we should see where they're coming from. That's a good lesson for us still. When we try to process somebody else's reaction, we don't understand, we don't agree with, we should try to see where they're coming from. Verse 12 tells us that these men wept because they saw the first house. They were around long enough to see the original temple 70 years before this. Now, this, this new second temple, notice there's no mention of the Ark of the Covenant. There's no visible glory of God that fills this temple. In fact, read closely, there's no temple, period. All the people are noticing here is just the beginnings of a structure, not the whole thing. And you keep in mind Israel's history before this. When they left Egypt, there were over 600,000 of them, at least 600,000 men. Now they left Babylon, they're back here, there are less than 50,000 men. So these old men weep and they cry because Israel was a far cry from what it once was. So who is right? Foundation of the Lord's done. People react in a couple different ways. 
Some people praise and thank God. Other people weep. Who's right? On the one hand, the people who praise and thank God are right, and the people who wept are wrong. We can say that in, in one sense. The people who praise God are not blindly optimistic because it's never wrong to praise God. Psalm 34 says to bless the Lord at all times. Even the prophets, we read Haggai earlier, the prophets back up this point. God spoke to the prophets of Haggai and Zechariah during this time. These are books at the end of the Old Testament. And they address the people who saw the original temple and were now weeping at the sight of the new one. God spoke through Haggai and told these people to be strong, even though this seems like nothing in their eyes. He told them that he will fill this temple with his glory, glory that surpasses that of the former temple. God spoke through Zechariah and told these people who were weeping not to despise the day of small beginnings. After he completed the first temple, King Solomon and, and the rest of the people, they praised and they thanked God. It was an amazing structure. It took years to build, and it came at the height of Israel's kingdom. The returned exiles here in Ezra who rebuilt the temple, they also praised and thanked God. They likely did so with the same words that Solomon used the same shouts of joy. But they did so in far more humble of conditions. So yeah, this new second temple might not have been as glorious as the first, but their praises sure were. To be able to praise God even in humble conditions. Brothers and sisters, is the Lord so precious that we can praise him and thank him even when we have lost much? Is he so precious that we can praise him and thank him even when we have nothing? Let's make this real. We can ask ourselves. We know that uh, we want to see where each one of us is coming from and, and processing pain we may feel and why we may weep. But we have to ask ourselves, will we praise our Savior the same way in another place as we praise him in this place. Listen, we can gain all the riches of Solomon and even more, but if we do not have Christ, we have nothing. We can lose our homes, we can lose our health, we can lose our building, but if we have Christ, we have everything. We have reason to praise and thank the Lord just as the Israelites did in humble conditions, were able to praise God with joy. So yes, the, the people who wept should learn from the people who praised. At the same time, the weeping here in Ezra 3, it should reveal that something is missing. Yes, the people are restored to the land, which is amazing, it's worth giving praise and thanks to God for, but God booted them out of the land in the first place because of their sin. And he had promised to deal with their sins once and for all, not just with the ongoing system of sacrifices, but to bring full and final forgiveness of their sin. And not just to wipe the slate clean either, but to change them fundamentally at their core, the core of their hearts, to give them new hearts, to place his spirit within them. 
So sure, they were back in the land and they started this new temple and they had godly leaders there. But God promised something more. He promised a king to reign on the throne of David forever, the Messiah. And yes, they, they rebuilt the temple, but this temple has not yet been filled with God's glory. They are waiting for something more. When would this something more come? How would it happen? How would things get better as God promised to the prophets like Haggai and Zechariah? While the Israelites saw the beginning of this work, God would fulfill all these promises, all this something more through Jesus. God the Son taken on flesh, the long-awaited Messiah, who would one day enter this very temple they were rebuilding. <laughs> Followers of Jesus stand in a similar position to these people in Ezra chapter 3 who had returned from exile. Christ has inaugurated his kingdom by living, dying, and rising again in the place of his people. And he now reigns in the hearts of his people through his spirit. But we still wait for Jesus to return, to make all things new, to fill the earth with his glory. And as we wait, life isn't all that happily ever after right now. We will face humble conditions. We will face opposition. But in the face of those, we commit to praising and thanking God for what he's done for us. And as we wait, we commit to trusting God that there is more to come. Growing up, one of my favorite uh, childhood books series was a series of unfortunate events by Daniel Handler, uh, also known as Lemony Snicket. Um, the author makes an eerie warning at the beginning of the first of these books. He says, if you are interested in stories with happy endings, you would be better off reading some other books. In this book, not only is there no happy ending, there is no happy beginning, and very few happy things in the middle. It's intriguing. Perhaps the reader's attention. Because it creates a longing in the reader. Because you hope that he's lying. <laughs> you keep reading to see, is this warning really true? All of us long for happy endings. Why don't we make our stories that way? Israel had gotten a resolution. <coughs> 70 years away from their land, now they're back. <coughs> Story wasn't over. There is still a longing for something more. We see that in the tears at the end of this chapter. In Christ, we too have received a good resolution, the end of our captivity to sin. He has set us free, he has made us his own, and now we commit to him. But as we commit, life has a way of making us wonder whether or not it really does have a happy ending. We join the weeping of the old Israelites. We join the groaning of the creation, as Romans 8 says. But we take heart knowing that he who began a good work will bring it about to completion in the day of the Lord Jesus, knowing that he who ascended to heaven will return, knowing that he is with us now by his Spirit and will dwell with us one day face to face where he will wipe away every tear and it will truly be happily ever after. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the grace that we receive. Nothing in our hands we bring, simply to your cross we claim. We have done nothing to earn our freedom. You have given it. 
And Lord, we want our lives to be fueled by your grace so that we worship you and commit to doing so even in the face of opposition, even in the face of disappointment, the face of longing. So we trust that just as Jesus rose victorious over the grave and over sin and over death, that he will return to reign victoriously and we will be with him. So be with us while we wait. Help us to trust in you. Help us to live for you, to commit to worshiping you, you alone. In Jesus' name we pray.